Chapter Eleven, Part One of Kangaroo by D. H. Lawrence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Chapter Eleven: Willie Struthers and Kangaroo, Part One of Two. Jazz took Somers to the famous Canberra house in Sydney, where the socialists and labor people had their premises, offices, meeting rooms, club rooms, quite an establishment. There was a lively feeling about the place, in spite of various down-at-the-heel malcontents who stood about in the passage and outside on the pavement, a business-like air. The two men were conducted into an inner room where a man sat at a desk. He was very dark, red-faced and thin, with deep lines in his face, a tight-shut, receding mouth, and black, burning eyes. He reminded Somers of the portraits of Abraham Lincoln, the same sunken cheeks and deep cadaverous lines and big black eyes. But this man, Willie Struthers, lacked that look of humor and almost of sweetness that one can find in Abraham Lincoln's portraits. Instead, he was suspicious and seemed as if he were brooding an inner wrong. He was a born Australian, had knocked about the continent, and spent many years in the gold fields. According to report, he was just comfortably well off, not rich. He looked rather shabby, seedy. His clothes had that look as if he had just thrown them on his back after picking them off the floor and one of his thin shoulders was noticeably higher than the other. But he was a distinct Australian type, thin, hollow-cheeked, with a brightish, brittle red skin on his face, and big, dark, incensed-looking eyes. He nodded to the two men as they entered, but did not speak nor rise from the desk. "'This is Mr. Somers,' said Jazz. "'You've read his book on democracy.' "'Yes, I've read it,' said Struthers. "'Take a seat.' He spoke with a pronounced Australian accent, a bad cockney. He stared at Summers for a few seconds, then looked away. He asked the usual questions, how Richard liked Australia, how long he had been there, how long he thought of staying. The two didn't get into any easy harmony. Then he began to put a few shrewd questions concerning the fascisti and socialisti in Italy the appropriation of the land by the peasants, and so on. Then about Germany, the actual temper of the working people, the quality of their patriotism since the war, and so on. You understand, said Somers, I don't pretend to give anything but personal impressions. I have no claim to knowledge whatever. That's all right, Mr. Somers. I want your impressions. What they call knowledge is like any other currency it's liable to depreciate. Sound, valuable knowledge today may not be worth the paper it's printed on tomorrow, like the Australian crone. We're no slaves to facts. Give us your impressions. He spoke with a peculiar kind of bitterness that showed passion, too. They talked about Europe for some time. The man could listen, listen with his black eyes, too. Watchful, always watchful, as if he expected some bird to fly suddenly out of the speaker's face. 
he was well informed and seemed to weigh and judge everything he heard as he heard it why when i left europe it seemed to me socialism was losing ground everywhere in italy especially in nineteen twenty it was quite a living exciting thing in italy it made people insolent usually but it lifted them up as well then it sort of fizzled down and last year there was only the smoke of it and a nasty sort of disappointment and disillusion a grating sort of irritation florence siena hateful the fascisti risen up and taking on airs and all just out of some sort of spite the dante festival at florence and the king there for example just set your teeth on edge mm, with their savoya all false and out of spite and what do you attribute it that to mr somers why i think the socialists don't quite believe in their own socialism so everybody felt let down in italy particularly it seemed to me they were on the brink of a revolution and the king was ready to abdicate and the church was ready to make away with its possessions i know that everything ready for a flight and then the socialists funked they just funked they daren't make a revolution because then they'd be responsible for the country and they daren't and so the fascisti seeing the socialists in a funk got up and began to try to kick their behinds mr struthers nodded his head slowly i suppose that is so he said i suppose that's what it amounts to they didn't believe in what they were doing but then they're a childish excitable people with no stability it seems to me socialism hasn't got the spark in it to make a revolution not in any country it hasn't got the spunk either there's no spunk in it what is there any spunk in asked the other man a sort of bitter fire corroding in his eyes where do you find any spunk oh nowhere said richard there was a silence struthers looked out of the window as if he didn't know what to say next and he played irritably with the blotter on the desk with his right hand richard also sat uncomfortably silent nowhere any spunk said struthers in his flat metallic voice no said richard and again the uncomfortable silence there was plenty of spunk in the war said struthers well sort of and because they felt they had to not from choice and mayn't they feel they have to again said struthers smiling rather grimly the two men eyed one another what'll make them asked richard oh circumstances ah well if circumstances richard was almost rude i know if it was a question of war the majority of returned soldiers would join up in a month in a week you hear it over and over again from the diggers here the war was the only time they ever felt properly alive but then they moved because they hated the germans self-righteously hated them and they can't quite bring it off to hate the capitalists with a self-righteous hate they don't hate them they know that if they themselves 
got a chance to make a pile of money and be capitalists, they'd jump at it. You can't work up a hate except on fear, and they don't fear the capitalists, and you can't make them. The most they'll do is sneer about them. Struthers still fidgeted with the blotter, with his thin, very red, hairy hand, and abstractedly stared at the desk in front of him. "'And what does all this mean in your estimation, Mr. Somers?' he asked dryly, looking nervously up. "'That you'll never get them to act. You'll never get labor or any of the socialists to make a revolution. They just won't act. Only the anarchists might.' and they're too few. I'm afraid they are growing more. Are they? Of that I know nothing. I should have thought they were growing fewer. Mr. Struthers did not seem to hear this. At least he did not answer. He sat with his head dropped, fingering the blotter, rather like a boy who is being told things he hates to hear, but which he doesn't deny. At last he looked up, and the fighting look was in the front of his eyes. "'It may be as you say, Mr. Somers,' he replied. "'Men may not be ready yet for a great change. "'That does not make the change any less inevitable. "'It's coming, and it's got to come. "'If it isn't here today, it will be here next century at least. "'Whatever you may say, the socialistic and communal ideal is a great ideal, "'which will be fulfilled when men are ready. "'We aren't impatient.' If revolution seems to be a premature jump, and perhaps it does, then we can go on step by step towards where we intend to arrive at last, and that is state ownership and international labor control. The General Confederation of Labor, as perhaps you know, does not aim at immediate revolutions. It wants to make the great revolution by degrees, step by step, by winning political victories in each country, by having new laws passed by our insistence, we intend to advance more slowly, but more surely, toward the goal we have in sight. Now, Mr. Summers, you are no believer in capitalism and in this industrial system as we have it. If I judge you correctly from your writings, you are no lover of the great washed middle class. They are more than washed, they are washed out and I think in your writings you say as much. You want a new spirit in society, a new bond between men. You want a new bond between men. Well, so do I, so do we. We realize that if we are going to go ahead, we need first and foremost solidarity. Where we fail in our present position is in our lack of solidarity. And how are we? To get it? You suggest us the answer in your writings. We must have a new bond between men, the bond of a real brotherhood. And why don't we find that bond sufficiently among us? Because we have been brought up from childhood to mistrust ourselves and to mistrust each other. We have been brought up in a kind of fetish worship. We are like tribes of savages with their witch-doctors. And who are our witch-doctors, our medicine-men? Why, they are professors of science, and professors of medicine, and professors of law, and professors of religion, 
all of whom thump on their tom-tom drums and overawe us and take us in and they take us in with the clever cry listen to us and you will get on get on get on you will rise up into the middle class and become one of the great washed the trick of this only educated men like yourself see through the working man can't see through it he can't see that for every one that gets on you must have five hundred people fresh slavers and toilers to produce the graft tempt all men to get on and it's like holding a carrot in front of five thousand asses all harnessed to your machine one ass gets the carrot and all the others have done your pulling for you now what we want is a new bond between fellow-men we've got to knock down the middle-class fetish and the middle-class medicine man but you've got to build up as you knock down you've got to build up the real fellow-feeling between fellow-men you've got to teach us working men to trust one another absolutely trust one another and to take all our trust away from the great washed and their medicine men who bleed us like leeches let us mistrust them but let us trust one another first and foremost let us trust one another we working men now mr summers you are a working man's son you know what i'm talking about isn't it right what i say and isn't it feasible a strange glow had come into his large black eyes something glistening and half-sweet fixing itself on you you felt drawn toward a strange sweetness perhaps poisonous yet it touched richard on one of his quivering strings the latent power that is man to-day to love his near mate with a passionate absolutely trusting love whitman says the love of comrades we say the mate love he is my might a depth of unfathomed unrealized love can go into that phrase my mate is waiting for me a man says and turns away from wife children mother and all the love of a man for his mate now richard knew what struthers wanted he wanted this love this mate trust called into consciousness and highest honor he wanted to set it where whitman tried to set his love of comrades it was to be the new tie between men in the new democracy it was to be the new passional bond in the new society the trusting love of a man for his might our society is based on the family the love of a man for his wife and his children or for his mother and brothers the family is our social bedrock and limit whitman said the next broader more unselfish rock would be the love of comrades the sacred relation of a man to his mate his fellow man if our society is going to develop a new great phase developing from where we stand now it must accept this new relationship as the new sacred social bond beyond the family we can't make bricks without straw that is you can't hold together the friable mixture of modern mankind without a new cohesive principle a new unifying passion and this will be the new passion of a man's absolute trust in his might 
his love for his might. Richard knew this, but he had learned something else as well. He had learned the great danger of the new passion, which as yet lay only half realized and half recognized, half effective. Human love, human trust, are always perilous because they break down. The greater the love, the greater the trust, and the greater the peril, the greater the disaster. Because to place absolute trust on another human being is in itself a disaster both ways, since each human being is a ship that must sail its own course, even if it go in company with another ship. Two ships may sail together to the world's end, but lock them together in mid-ocean and try to steer both with one rudder, and they will smash one another to bits. So it is when one individual seeks absolutely to love or trust another. Absolute lovers always smash one another, absolute trusters the same. Since man has been trying absolutely to love women, and women to love men, the human species has almost wrecked itself. If now we start a still further campaign of men loving and absolutely trusting each other, comrades or mates, heaven knows the horror we are laying up. And yet love is the greatest thing between human beings, men and women, men and men, women and women, when it is love, when it happens. But when human love starts out to lock individuals together, it is just courting disaster. Man and woman love is a disaster nowadays. What a holy horror man and man love would be, mates or comrades. What is it then that is wrong? Why, human beings can't absolutely love one another. Each man does kill the thing he loves by sheer dint of loving it. Is love then just a horror in life? Ah, no. This individuality which each of us has got, and which makes him a wayward, willful, dangerous, untrustworthy quantity to every other human individual, because every individuality is bound to react at some time against every other individuality, without exception, or else lose its own integrity, because of the inevitable necessity of each individual to react away from any other individual at certain times, human love is truly a relative thing, not an absolute. It cannot be absolute. Yet the human heart must have an absolute. It is one of the conditions of being human. The only thing is the God who is the source of all passion. Once go down before the God passion, and human passions take their right rhythm. But human love, without the God passion, always kills the thing it loves. Man and woman virtually are killing each other with the love will now. What would it be when mates or comrades broke down in their absolute love and trust? Because, without the polarized God-passion to hold them stable at the center, break down they would. With no deep God, who is the source of all passion and life to hold them separate and yet sustain in accord, the loving comrades would smash one another and smash all love, all feeling as well. 
it would be a rare, gruesome sight. Any more love is a hopeless thing, till we have found again, each of us for himself, the great dark God who alone will sustain us in loving one another. Till then, best not play with more fire. Richard knew this, and it came to him again powerfully under the dark eyes of Mr. Struthers. Yes, he answered slowly, I know what you mean, and you know I know, and it's probably your only chance of carrying socialism through. I don't really know how much it is feasible, but wait a minute, Mr. Somers. You are the man I have been waiting for, all except the but. Listen to me a moment further. You know our situation here in Australia. You know that labor is stronger here, perhaps more unopposed than in any other country in the world. We might do anything. Then why do we do nothing? You know as well as I do, because there is no real unifying principle among us. We are not together. We aren't one. And probably you never will be able to unite Australians on the wage question and the state ownership question alone. They don't care enough. It doesn't really touch them emotionally, and they need to be touched emotionally, brought together that way. Once that was done, we'd be a grand, solid, working-class people. Grand, unselfish, a real people. When wilt thou save the people, O God of Israel? When? It looks as if the God of Israel would never save them. We've got to save ourselves. Now you know quite well, Mr. Somers, we're an unstable, unreliable body today, the Labour Party here in Australia. And why? Because in the first place we haven't got any voice. We want a voice. Think of it. We've got no real Labour newspaper in Sydney or in Australia. How can we be united? We have no voice to call us together. And why don't we have a paper of our own? Well, why? Nobody has the initiative. What would be the good over here of a grievance-airing rag like your London Daily Herald? It wouldn't be taken any more seriously than any other rag. It would have no real effect. Australians are a good bit subtler and more disillusioned than the English working classes. You can throw Australians chaff, and they'll laugh at it. They may even pretend to peck it up, but all the same they know, and they're not taken in. The bulletin would soon help them out if they were. They've got a natural sarcastic turn, have the Australians. They'll do imbecile things, because one thing is pretty well as good as another to them. They don't care then what's the good of starting another red rag if the bull won't run at it? And this Australian bull may play about with a red rag, but it won't get his real dander up. No, you've got to give them something to appeal to the deeper man in them. That deeper man is waiting to be appealed to, and we're waiting for the right individual to come along and put the appeal to him. Now, Mr. Summers, Here's your chance. I'm in a position to ask you, won't you help us bring out a sincere, constructive, socialist paper, not a grievance error, 
but a paper that calls to the constructive spirit in men. Deep calleth to deep, and the trouble with us here is, no one calls to our deeps. They lie there stagnant. I can't do it. I'm too grimy. It wants a deep, fresh nature, and I'm too stale. Now, Mr. Summers, you're the son of a working man. You were born of the people. You haven't turned your back on them, have you, and now that you're a well-known gentleman? No, no, said Richard, laughing at the irony. Then here is your work before you. Come and breathe the breath of life into us through the printed word. Come and take charge of a true people's paper for us. We needn't make it a daily, make it a twice-weekly, and let it appeal to the Australian, to his heart, for his heart is the right place to appeal to. Let it breathe the new air of trust and comradeship into us. We are ready for it, dying for it. Show us how to believe in one another with all our hearts. Show us that the issue isn't just the wage issue or who holds the money. It's brother love at last, on which Christ's democracy is bound to rest. It's the living people. It is man to man at last. The red face of Willie Struthers seemed to glow with fire, and his black eyes had a strange glisten as he watched Richard's face. Richard's pale, somber face showed that he was moved. There was a strange excitement, a deep, exciting vibration in the air, as if something secret were taking place. Jazz, in his corner, sat silent as a mouse, his knees wide apart, his elbows on his knees, his head dropped. Richard's eyes, at length, met the black, excited, glistening eyes of the other man, and he felt that something in the glisten was bearing him down, as a snake bears down a bird, himself the bird. But his heart was big within him, swollen in his breast, because in truth he did love the working people, he did know them capable of a great, generous love for one another, and he did also believe, in a way, that they were capable of building up this great church of Christ, the great beauty of a people, upon the generous passion of mate love. All this theoretical socialism, started by Jews like Marx and appealing only to the will-to-power of the masses, making money the whole crux, this has cruelly injured the working people of Europe, for the working people of Europe were generous by nature, and money was not their prime passion. All this political socialism, all politics, in fact, have conspired to make money the only god. It has been a great treacherous conspiracy against the generous heart of the people, and that heart is betrayed, and knows it. Then can't the injury be remedied? Can't the working men be called back, man to man, to a generous opening of the heart to one another, money forgotten? Can't a new great inspiration of belief in the love of mates be breathed into the white peoples of the world, and a new day be built on this belief? It can be done. It could be done. Only the terrible stress, the strain of the hearts of men, if, as human beings, the whole weight of the living world is to rest on them, 
each man with the poles of the world resting on his heart, men would go mad. You see, stammered Richard, it needs more than a belief of men in each other. But what else is there to believe in? Quacks, medicine men, scientists and politicians? It does need some sort of religion. Well, then, well, then, the religious question is ticklish, especially here in Australia, but all the churches are established on Christ, and Christ says, love one another. Richard laughed suddenly. Ha! That makes Christ into another political agent, he said. Well, then, I'm not deep enough for these matters, but surely you know how to square it with religion. Seems to me it is religion. Love one another. Ah, uh, without a God. Well, as I say, it's Christ's teaching, and that ought to be God enough. Richard was silent, his heart heavy. It all seemed so far from the dark God he wished to serve, the God from whom the dark sensual passion of love emanates, not only the spiritual love of Christ. He wanted men once more to refer to the sensual passion of love sacredly, to the great dark God, the ithophalic of the first dark religions. And how could that be done when each dry little individual ego was just mechanically set against any such dark flow, such ancient submission, as, for instance, Willie Struthers at this minute. Struthers didn't mind Christ. Christ could easily be made to subserve his egoistic purposes. But the first dark ithyphalic god, whom men had once known so tremendous, Struthers had no use for him. I don't think I can do it. I don't think I have the right touch, said Richard slowly. Nay, Mr. Summers, don't you be a funker now. This is the work you were born for. Don't leave us in the lurch. I shouldn't be doing what you want me to do. Do what seems best to yourself. We'll risk it. Make your own conditions. I know as far as money goes you won't be hard. But take the job on now it's been waiting for you waiting for you to come out here don't funk at the last minute i won't promise at this minute said richard rising to escape i want to go now i will tell you within a week you might send me some details of your scheme for the paper will you and i'll think about it hard mr struthers watched him as if he would read his soul but richard wasn't going to leave his soul red by force. Very well. I'll see you have the whole scheme of the proposal tomorrow. I don't think you'll be able to run away from it. End of chapter 11 Willie Struthers and Kangaroo Part 1 of 2